0: Hi everyone, welcome to Being Patient Brain Talks. I'm Deborah Kahn, founder of Being Patient. We thought we would do a segment today on how to diagnose dementia, different types of dementia, as well as Alzheimer's disease. We hear from so many of you how difficult it is to get an accurate diagnosis or some in some cases taking many years, as many as five years, to have a confirmed diagnosis. So we thought we would go uh, to the very best, um, Dr. Marwan Sabah. He is at Cleveland Clinic. He's the director of the Lou uh, Ruvo Center, Alzheimer's um, Center at Cleveland. Thanks so much, Marwan, for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me, Deborah. It's good to see you.
0: Okay, so there's no easy way to put it, so I'm just gonna put it to you uh, straight out there. Uh, Alzheimer's has been around for a very long time. Why is it still so hard for people to get an accurate diagnosis quickly?
1: Yeah, that's uh, a long story. Uh, We know that uh, in 1984 the NINDS uh, uh, published a paper suggesting that you can only make a diagnosis with autopsy or biopsy confirmation uh, to definitively call it Alzheimer's disease. Uh, Probable Alzheimer's disease was considered to be uh, a clinical syndrome that was typical for Alzheimer's and no other cause identified and then possible was considered to be other possible contributing causes so the the reason we, uh, that's a, such an important time in our field is that uh we learned that you can only diagnose alzheimer's with an autopsy in medical school that's what the general public still believes that's what people are taught uh it's very unfortunate and so what we, we do typically and still to this day in 2020 we use what's called the diagnosis of exclusion that means that you know you get an MRI of your brain checking you for stroke and tumors and water on the brain. We check your thyroid and we check your vitamin B12 levels. And if they're all normal, we kind of say by default, you might have something else like Alzheimer's. So, so essentially, we, we kind of fall into a diagnosis of Alzheimer's uh, by excluding other uh, conditions, which turns out, and I hope we'll talk about it, Deborah, is notoriously inaccurate in a diagnosis. And because of that, physicians don't feel comfortable making a diagnosis. You know, we don't have the blood test or the scan. Well, we do. Uh, We'll talk about that. But they're not readily used or readily available. So doctors have just been trying to exclude other conditions. And so they just don't feel comfortable. Yeah.
0: I mean, it's it's um, so I mean, so does it come down, uh, let me just give you an example here. I just recently spoke to someone who um, is, was really worried about their father. Their father was presenting um, abnormal behavior um, and memory loss as well. Um, went to a very prestigious um, institution. I'm not going to name any names here, um, but wasn't even given a mocha test. And it was oh. the kids who had to say, hey, like, shouldn't he have a mocha test? Um, so why? What tell us what the right way? What are some of the first things? Okay, someone someone goes to a doctor experiencing memory loss. What are what are some of the first things that should happen?
1: Yeah, so the, you know, I mean, I am a subspecialist neurologist. That my day job is taking care of people with Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia. But the fact is, is that I'm not the point of entry. The point of entry is a patient going to their primary care physician. Primary care physician, in many cases. It will downplay or dismiss oh there's nothing wrong don't worry about it you know it's your it's uh you're depressed you're having trouble sleeping etc uh they don't even bother to take a complaint of a memory concern seriously so the point of entry needs to at least at a minimum they should say okay well let's evaluate it let's refer you on that would be the best solution we can hope for but uh uh we here at the Cleveland Clinic have been trying to re-engineer the whole uh, diagnostic experience from start to finish, and we'll talk, we can discuss that. But the bottom line is, is that a physician should ask about what's, what's the worry and how often is it occurring, in their, uh, and then go on to do at least a mini-cog, mini-mental something just to screen them to ensure that there's nothing serious going on.
0: So, um, and I have to ask you about those cognitive screenings, because I mean, I've given my mom, I haven't lately, but in, in the past when she was first um, diagnosed, I'd give her um, a mocha test maybe once a week. Um, she performed very differently each day or each week. I gave it to her, Some sometimes her scores were great, other times they were terrible. Yeah. So. How good a measure is that to just even flag cognitive decline?
1: So there's two parts to that answer. First is the MOCA is harder than the mini mental. And second, you get something called a practice effect over time. You know, we used to joke that people will remember ball flag tree or apple table penny from the mini mental and they'll say it when I walk in the door because they've been practicing it. So doing it from day to day or week to week is going to give you a different kind of an understanding than doing it every few months or every six months. So um, uh, we know that um, there, uh, besides the practice effects, we would probably not want to do it as often as every week for sure. Uh, and uh, uh, a lot of things can confound it, right? They have trouble sleeping, they do worse. They may do better in the morning, worse in the afternoon. They may be taking medicine for pain, May make them worse. In other words, there's a lot of reasons that you can see that noise and variations are from week to week.
0: So arm us with um, a list of questions. Um, we're taking, we're going to the doctor, worried about um, there may be some problems. Maybe the family is taking the loved one to the doctor, worried there may be something wrong. If we're not seeing a neurologist right away, what are some of the questions we should be asking our GP in order to get um,
1: answers? Yeah, so um, you need to ask, uh, uh, first thing, are, are there medications causing memory issue? I, you know, we we have, it's Christmas, so, or it's December, so there's the naughty list and the nice list. Certainly, there are lists of medications that clearly affect memory. And so the first thing I would say is, are there, you know, mom or dad is having a memory issue are they on medications that could be causing it Uh, how long has it been going on Quantify. you know this has been going on for a week 10 weeks a year uh it's getting worse it's not getting worse it is fluctuating in nature uh they've had physical changes as well uh um and uh, try to tell the physician that this is not old age and this is something more than and and is warrant their intention at a minimum, it should get them to say, "Okay, well, let's let's get it evaluated, and then refer on." Uh, but uh, you really need to come up with a story. You know, it's kind of like back pain. Like, how long has it been going on? What caused it? What triggered it? You want to give them a story of what, how long has it been going on? What is it getting worse? Is it not getting worse? Things like that.
0: So, okay, tell us then how diagnostics are changing. Um, you know, we're hearing, and I know in being patient, we've covered um, several blood tests that yeah. look um, promising and close to coming um, to market, maybe a year or two away. Um, tell, two years. Um, oh, no, sooner. Oh, sooner. Okay. Tell us. Um, how far? Okay, let's just take the blood test then. How far away are we from going to the doctor's, getting our blood drawn, and saying, "Uh, yep, you have Alzheimer's." Yes.
1: Yeah, so I uh, want you to know that Quest Diagnostics has already rolled out their own test with their own test code called three eight three five zero. I don't. I we've tried it in our clinic at the Clinton Clinic. I don't. I'm not sure how accurate it is. C2N, uh, a company which is the spin-off of Washington University, announced this week that they have CLIA certification and they are now doing commercial testing. It is not covered by insurance yet, but it is a provable test. You can order it now. It's what's called the plasma 42 to40. 40. I think at their test is going to have great accuracy. And uh, the reason that's going to be so important is that um, uh, you want to use it to exclude pathology, not include pathology. And I'll explain that in more detail. But the bottom line is, it's not a year or two. It's actually starting to roll out as we speak, and so we might see a year from now. And so the idea is that a, a blood test like that, uh, Deborah, would be like a, a PSA for a man. You know, if the, if it's elevated, it doesn't mean you absolutely have cancer. It just means there's something wrong. You need to go explore it. Or if the hemoglobin A1C for a diabetic is elevated, you should go check them for diabetes. It doesn't mean you absolutely have diabetes until they can prove it otherwise. But if the value becomes abnormal, you should say it's worthy of investigation. And what we really want to see is if the value is normal, you don't have the disease, heart stop. So I see it as a first tier screening. Physicians feel much more comfortable on trying to look at a blood test and then render an opinion on a blood test than trying to divine what's going on clinically. So I think that's, where I think physicians will really kind of feel much more comfortable. Sure.
0: Okay, so but you've mentioned a couple of companies, there's quite a number of them who are, are right now, um, sure. developing blood tests. Are they all identifying the same thing? Or are these different biomarkers within our blood that you know, could be indicative of, of dementia?
1: Yeah. So the answer is is that I think a lot of people are going to roll out the ratio of amyloid 42 to 40. I think that's the first gen uh, blood test. What you're asking is, are we going to add P-tau, phosphorylated tau 181, or phosphorylated tau 217 to enhance the diagnostic accuracy? And the answer is probably yes. But the question is, are they going to do it right up front? Uh, And that is not very clear. Uh, But I do see that the uh, amyloid 42 to 40 ratio is coming fairly soon. And uh, and I think over time, we will see more and more tests added to that package.
0: Marwan, what does this mean though, to get diagnosed earlier or having a more definitive way like a blood test? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming we're gonna still do the cognitive testing. Um, however, um, something like a blood test, what does this all mean? I mean, you know, there are some doctors who still believe you shouldn't tell the patient if they have Alzheimer's because it will only impact them psychologically and emotionally and that might not be good. So what do you want yeah. to say about that?
1: Uh, it breaks my heart and it annoys me greatly and those doctors need to go do something else. Uh, it's as simple as that. Uh, that's like saying, you know, don't tell the patient he has cancer because he's going to die. Well, he might die anyways. You know, the bottom line is, is that I don't think holding withholding information is in the interest of the patient. Uh, uh, so what I think is going to happen, though, is that uh, a blood test may alert the doctor to do more uh, and not dismiss things. So if they got a blood test, let's say the doctor's like, I'm skeptical, but I already blood test and it's abnormal, They're like, oh, maybe I need to evaluate it further. I think, that the diag- uh, I think that first of all, physicians that need do not feel comfortable. So a blood test or any test that would be available would improve their comfort level and confidence. Uh, but you need to understand that things work in parallel. Because the other thing you hear, and I'm sure you heard from for all the work, wonderful work you've done, Deborah, is that physicians say, so why are we even bothering to do this? It's, you know, you, cause there's nothing you can do about the patient anyways. Which, again, I d- strongly disagree with. And that would uh, negate my day job. And I feel like I have a good day job. So uh, I will say to you that um, uh, that we see uh, that uh, uh, physicians should make the diagnosis, should feel comfortable to making the diagnosis, should be comfortable re- telling patients about this because it's a journey. It's not like a patient walks in the door, I just say, you have Alzheimer's, see you later. We, we're going to get them through this to reduce their suffering, reduce their their, their, their caregiver burden, or, you know improve their quality of life, retain what they have. And then when we see the monoclonal antibodies or other disease-modifying treatments, we can see the possibility of Uh, meaningful changes in their outcomes. So uh, I, I just strongly disagree with the idea that we shouldn't diagnose this disease.
0: Okay. So, and tell us, um, technology wise. I mean, again, being patient has covered companies that are turning to artificial intelligence to try to create a profile, a risk profile, uh, even, uh, a risk score associated with the chances of getting, getting, um, Alzheimer's disease. Um, what is there anything out there other than the blood test that excites you in terms of diagnostics?
1: yeah so i think that the blood test is a contextually needs to be done in a re-engineering of the entire patient experience i think that the way we go about this is we come up with a and i published this in paper in 2017 you come up with a structured interview which includes some questionnaires which are informant based and then you do what's called an aggregate risk analysis based on the kibapelto katie score then you do the bedside mini mental mocha assessment then you do the physical neuro exam, then you do the blood test, including a plasma uh, uh, test. I'm a big fan of APOE. I sit very clearly in the minority on that uh, t- topic, so I'm not gonna drive down that road because most people disagree with me on that. Uh, and and then I would apply the international working group criteria. I can tell you, Deborah, that we can get to a diet. The clinical diagnosis accuracy right now is only 70, 75%, which means we're wrong. One out of four times, outright wrong, and and the study after study after study shows this. So we can actually, with biomarkers, get that accuracy above ninety percent without having to, you know, massively increase the cost of evaluation. So I think that's a, that's a win and can be achieved right away. Uh, and uh, but then beyond that is uh, how do we fashion our our practice uh, to accommodate the changes that are coming.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, that's like the misdiagnosis. It's, it sounds to me that what you're saying is we need to retrain the medical profession. It's not the patients, right? It's not the people coming in saying, wait, there is something wrong. It's the answers they're getting from the professionals um, and maybe the standardization of, but is it possible that dementia is a tricky one? I mean, we know there's a lot of different types of dementia. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, an expert who may be able to diagnose Alzheimer's may not be able to diagnose Lewy body, for example. So what, you know, what's happening in terms of misdiagnosis of different types of dementia?
1: So misdiagnosis is very common. Uh, I will tell you that even in our clinic, we disagree with the referring diagnosis up to 90% of the time. Uh, So uh, yeah, I expect the misdiagnosis is occurring. Uh, I will say to you, Deborah, that we are, there's a whole bunch of that, highly validated, structured, informant based questionnaires that are available. There's the Jim Galvin Louis Body Dementia Rating Scale. Uh, it's a very, uh, or Lewy Body Clinical Ra- uh, Dementia Rating Scale. Very, very good uh, uh, instrument. There's similar kinds of instruments for frontal temporal dementia. So we do have screening tools that are useful uh, and could be used to improve the diagnosis. Not perfect, but better than the average. and. Uh, I remember being, uh, having residents from primary care rotate through my clinics in the past. And they, you could tell this is, they were in their last year of residence and they were just there because they had to check the box. And they had one day with me and they were like, yeah, 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 I know this. Uh, you don't need to uh, uh, tell me anything I don't know. And by the end of the day, they're like, oh crap. I didn't know any of this stuff. How was I supposed to know this? When in fact, primary care, Deborah, 20% of primary care is neurology, okay, and neurologically based, and the number one place that if patients go to get evaluated for memory issues is the primary care physician, and they're getting, out of 36 months, they're getting one day, if that, of training in this field. They're just frankly under-trained, and we're trying to re-engineer whole massive systems of healthcare based on physicians that just don't have the proper training.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. And, you know, it goes with my gut of really listening to patients and um, their families because they know the person the best. Right. right. I mean, yeah. it's it's harder for. Um, and in fact, we just got a great comment by um, Chris Boyce, who said, you know, he went to Cleveland today for a memory test. Um, and, but when it comes to CTE, which he's obviously been diagnosed with, the doctor told me not enough research is available on CTE. This is exemplifying exactly what you're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he, he uh, you know, how do we, Um, how do we make up for these shortfalls? I mean, maybe just maybe it's empowering a community of caregivers and patients on educating them about what to bring up, what questions to ask, what to really Mm -hmm. press on. I mean, too much, too much of the time. I feel like, you know, people walk away feeling completely defeated, like they weren't taken seriously enough.
1: Yeah. And it's so true. And it's a very frustrating, uh, uh, for, for the super specialist and for a lot of patients. Uh, you know, I think a lot of times I'm dealing with patients and like, oh, my God, thank you for at least giving me a sense of what I'm dealing with. It's not always great news, but at least they know what they're they're up against and they can have some way forward. Um, I, I want to say to you that um, uh, I am a big fan of reengineering the whole patient experience with a protocol-driven uh, a world, meaning that, Instead of trying to make it, leave it up to doctors to figure it out for themselves, hand them the protocol and say, "This is how you're going to do it." Uh, and the reason I say that doctors actually like that kind of thing—they you know they have protocols on how to manage blood pressure and cholesterol and diabetes and osteoporosis and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So why not just create a memory protocol for them to follow? Um, you know, I remember 25 years ago when you know the idea that you would give this, this clot buster TPA. For stroke was a way crazy idea, and now it's standard standard practice. You you have a stroke, you get the clot busting drug, and it's because they created protocols to say, doctor, this is how you do it. So what I'm saying is the way used to wait forward, at least on the medical side, is to um, is to uh, uh, on the, uh, is protocols on the patient side. I would say to you, look it up, create checklists. There are a lot of warning signs. You could actually create a checklist Say, yep, dad's doing this, yes, dad's doing that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then say doctor, uh, in fact, we're actually been talking about doing a lot of these screens before they ever come in to see us. So by the time they walk in the door, a lot of companies and a lot of places online are, I would have a report of what the patient's already experiencing by the time they go and see me. And that's, that's the being developed as we speak by many groups in the country. Uh, so i i would say to you that uh, that's the way physicians is the patient would have checklists of like yes this is the scores this is what he's experiencing and that would take away the guess guessing
0: what what are some of the i mean you see so many patients um what are some of the more common early signs that you see yeah. people coming to you um with like what what i yeah. first getting to you what what are they saying what are some right. of the you know We
1: had such a a demand around these kinds of questions that actually created our own screening tool, published, copyrighted, available online. It's called the Alzheimer's questionnaire. Uh, uh, We prefer it to be administered by an informant or answered by an informant. Uh, But basically, uh, and it tells you, are you doing this? Are you repeating yourself? Are you getting lost? And it has a list of 26 questions. I think 26 questions or 22 questions, something like that. And then if they're, if they're above a certain score, we know that there's something wrong. And if they're below a certain score, we can say, well, don't worry about it. Um, so what I'm saying is that those questionnaires exist. There are three of these kinds of instruments. One is called the AQ, as I said, the AD8, Alzheimer's disease, eight questions, and the IQ code. But these are things you could actually do yourself going into the doctor saying, well, gee, I am doing this, or my dad is doing this, or my mom doing this." and they go through the list. And I would say those are available. And so you could create those lists without having to have physicians guess. So on an 88, if the patient's family member with has Alzheimer's and they're scoring eight out of eight, that's pretty, pretty problematic.
0: So, and we have a question that has asked, you know, is cognitive screening part of primary uh, care clinic visits? Well, yeah. it should be, but it's not, is it?
1: It is not, <laughs> and it's a problem. It's a problem because the United States Preventive Task Force had the chance to weigh in on this, and they weighed in on it twice, and they said they do not endorse routine screening of cognitive impairment as part of the annual Medicare primary care visit. It's a disaster, Deborah. Why? Look, you're getting screened for colon cancer, you're getting screened for diabetes, you're getting screened for uh, 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 osteoporosis. Why aren't you being screened for memory issues? Uh, so the answer, the short answer is, is it the screening part of the primary care clinic visit? The answer is no, but it should be.
0: But, okay, we are told, um, and this is more recent thinking, maybe in the last 10 years or so, it's so important to get a cognitive assessment when you're healthy, right? Because yeah. my memory is much different than your memory. Mine is probably much worse, but mine is much different. and. That, you know, I, I remember you're the one who told me when I, I told you a, a couple years ago, I said, you know, Maron, I can't remember anyone's name or faces. And I, it's a real problem. Yeah. And, he's, and you said, well, have you always not been able to remember the names and faces? And I was like, yeah, actually. And he's like, then it's, you're, it's not a problem. Right. And so that's like identifying what are normal weaknesses that you've probably been living with and yeah. ones where you're really, uh, you know, slipping.
1: Yeah. And uh, and so the always the the determinant is is what they were able to do before and what they're able to do now. If there's a change from before to present, that's when we're saying okay, we need to evaluate it. But if you know, I love how when patients say to me, uh, "Yeah, I've always been forgetful, but their neuropsych testing clearly shows something different." I'm like, "Well, not really, not like this." Uh, So,
0: yeah, it's hard to be objective about yourself too, right? Of course. Yeah, of course, Okay. I want to throw this one at you because I find found it really fascinating. Um, I 16 minutes a couple of weeks ago did. I don't know if you saw the segment. It was um, aging, super agers, 90 plus and they've um, I think it's UC Irvine and Stanford doing it together. Yeah. But they're studying. You probably know the study. I know um, uh,
1: my friend Claudia Kawas is the one who runs it. She's fantastic, okay. amazing. So
0: what, really astounded me are the results, which are they so far they're six years in um, with people over 90 and some into their hundreds. Um, Some of them um, ended up with dementia, but no showed no signs of beta amyloid plaque um or tau in the autopsy and some of them still alive and living a cognitively normal or appears to be um have plaque and tangles in their brain so what's going on here like what yeah. are we missing
1: uh, so a couple of things first of all uh, not all uh dementia is alzheimer's and we now know that a lot of the people with these uh late late or very senior years may have non-Alzheimer-driven types of uh, uh, diseases. We would call them late or part and things like that, um, that they actually have other kinds of inclusions called AGR grains. In other words, many things can cause dementia, and it's not blacks and Um So um, uh, that just suggests that these people are resistant to the developments of amyloid and tau. And good for them, we want to know what their secret sauce is because we would like to all have that secret sauce. Um, uh, but the other thing, of course, on the flip side of it is that plaques, amyloid, is not sufficient. It's usually it's usually a triggering of a tangle or tau event that says it. So sort of, these people can have a lot, quite a bit of amyloid in their brain, but not be developing the the pathology that leads to dementia. So we understand that dementia usually is occurring because of the spread of tau, not the spread of amyloid. And so something about that transition from amyloid to tau is what triggers the progression. Uh, And so uh, we're still trying to figure out why you can have such a huge amount of ammo in your brain, uh, uh, but not develop dementia. I don't think people have settled on a reason why.
0: Yeah, it's it's fascinating. I found that that study incredibly fascinating. Um, Okay, and a question. Aside from uh, blood-based biomarkers, what are other potential diagnostic tools? Is there anything on the horizon that we should know about?
1: Yeah, two things that are, are relevant is, of course, now we have PET scans that are available. They're not covered by Medicare, unfortunately, even though the data shows they're very, very informative and they are approved. And so a PET scan could show you amyloid in the brain quite well. We actually can look at tau or tangle PET now, again, not covered by me- Medicare, but is re- is approved. I think the other things that are gonna be very important uh, that people don't really talk about yet is looking in your eyes with the retina. that can actually now check, detect amyloid in your eyes. That's pretty cool. I think that's uh, not quite ready for prime time, but getting a lot of interest. And saliva, believe it or not, we could spit in the tube and just measure the amount of amyloid in your saliva. So what I'm saying is the idea of detecting Alzheimer changes is not that far off in the future.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating to see where the science is moving, Marwan. It's always so great to talk to you, and um, I, I do feel better once I talk to you. That you know, there, there's a right way to diagnose out there. So there sure is, Dr. Marwan Sabah. Thank you so much for joining us. If you want um, more to see this interview, if you missed any of it, or you want to see more of it. Please uh, go to beingpatient.com, sign up for our newsletter. We're going to have more talks like these. Uh, Send us your questions ahead of time or participate live. Thanks very much for joining us.